church. Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're in this new series called Pursuit. And yes, we are. We're all going to just do it. We're just going to pursue God. That's going to be our sole pursuit. Um, I'm going to preach the word in, in such a way that uh, I can't convince you, but that it's the truth that the Holy Spirit will speak to our hearts and our minds. The only desire of our hearts will be to pursue God himself. And then let all the other things work itself out. Uh, that's hard though. Like We want to say yes to that. And then we want to talk about things like, I will follow you and even sing the lyrics to only know that it's very difficult to follow through with that which we're declaring there. But we need to be that kind of church. I was, I was thinking about this week, I gave a devotional to both campuses. I do every week for the teachers. And I gave them a devotional about kind of fixing gaze. And it worked so beautifully today. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to bring in kind of an illustration that I brought in for the teachers this week. This applies to many things in life. I just, I like sports and I enjoy sports. And there's a couple of athletic uh, um, adventures I get to have each week. I keep myself in shape by playing some tennis. Uh, not so much shape, keeping myself in golf. That just builds frustration, but it's still fun to be out in the, in the grass and whatnot. But uh, there's two things in both golf and tennis that it requires, and it's a fixed gaze. Uh, it, the same thing goes for other sports. I remember watching athletes uh, try to make a turn particularly in, in, in football, that wide receiver making a turn before he's even caught the ball. There's something that needs to transpire first and foremost, and your gaze must be upon that first. In tennis particularly, you got a racket and you have a tennis ball. And it, you're supposed to hit the ball ahead of you. That's the goal, of course. And on the strings and not on the frame. That's the intent of it all. But the goal here really is to, is to uh, be very mindful about the contact you make out in front and that you see the ball in front of you at all times. Roger Federer is at the top of his game. He's one of the oldest tennis uh, um, athletes right now on the ATP Tour. Resurged and does something very beautifully. You can watch slow motion as Roger Federer takes that, takes that racket back and comes. And he hits that ball. And as he hits that ball, his eyes still remain in that spot that was so key. Golf's the same thing. If you watch some of the best golf strikers in the world, ball strikers in the world of golf, the key is, and Joe knows this, Dennis would know this, anybody that golfs, our problem is just we want to sneak a peek. And in sneaking, you can't move your head. The same thing happens for me in tennis. I want to know, know results before I actually have a chance to, to, before I actually have the chance to actually make those results happen. And with a golf swing, you come down, and the best ball strikers strike that ball, and their eyes are still fixed upon the point at which they were supposed to hit. Too often in our lives, I, I think we start this way very young. As I watched, it was fantastic to watch these little kids playing basketball at the gym on Monday night. It was, it was more exciting than sometimes a varsity game. It was great. The crowd was there. It was, it was exciting. It was all the way to the end what the score was going to be, uh, who was going to pull out the win. But it was interesting to watch certain uh, athletes at that age develop. And I remember this. You get the ball, and the first thing you do, everybody's like, well, they're screaming it too, shoot the ball, right? But the first thing you do is like, great, I'm going to shoot the ball with no look at the target, without setting the body up properly and doing the things you need to do. People were making, some of the kids were making layups like this, but not even looking at the, you know, it's something that will develop in time. And I know the people working with them will help that develop in their lives. But as we get older, we become so comfortable with the idea of that moment that we're doing, as I'm telling you, we're looking away from the moment that we absolutely need to be gazing at 
or the thing that we must be gazing at or to the one we must set our gaze upon that we'd have the most impact with what we're doing, that it would bear the results. We can't worry about results so much as we are to say, I will stay in the moment, and if I stay in the moment and I fix my gaze properly, the results should take care of themselves. But we are human, and we want to move on to the next thing, so we pull out of that moment. We want to see the results before we actually make things happen that really produce the results that are required. If we aren't careful in our lives, we do this all the time. The word in particular this morning is going to be for us to fix our gaze or our focus and on the thing that's very important moving forward. Jesus says to come follow me, and that's the scripture that we're going to talk about today. Is there's, there's, there's this moment which Jesus invites many into, that which many really can't participate it's kind of actually a, a sad moment, but because he knows people's hearts, we're a, we're a people that like to move quickly. I don't know if we've been trained that way or move forward, or even a, a people that like to look at the past, and we don't stay present in the moment God's given us as a gift to be as effective as possible. And so today we're going to address that scripture that will speak to this in our hearts and our minds today, I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not an easy scripture, but I believe God's given us some insight today, me particularly, on how to explain what is going on in these scriptures. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and the title of this is No Looking Back. Where we fix our gaze is super important. I'm going to start particularly in verse 57, if you want to join along. Chapter 9, verse 57 of Luke, and this is the scripture for the day. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. He said to another person, come follow me. The man agreed, but he said, first, Lord, let me first return home and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach about the kingdom of God. Another said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. But Jesus told them, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we come to you and ask you to come speak to our hearts today. Reveal the scripture to us, Lord, that it would break down certain walls and certain tendencies in our lives, certain safeguards, things that we think we're protecting, things that we, we think that we must have in our life, the things that really hinder us from doing the very thing that we declared in song, and that was, I'll follow you wherever you go, who you love, I'll love, how you serve, I'll serve. I know that's the desire of a heart originally, but Lord, the, the thing that we're asking is that you would sow that deep desire of following through. And so use this scripture today to speak to your people fresh and anew, that we would not just learn something, but be able to take this scripture and truly let it be applied to our circumstances, our lives that it would bear great fruit for the kingdom of God as you've called us to. And we pray this 
knowing humbly, God, you can do a work beyond our recognition. You could do a work, which we may be even stubbornly against in this moment. And I pray for great freedom upon all hearts, including my own. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So our focus today will be on this scripture where Jesus calls attention to some very specific things which one must do to follow. Last week was the pursuit of God, to bear a cross. We'll talk a little bit about that again towards the end of the service. We're putting all this together to shape what it's going to be for us moving forward because the scripture has clearly set out to describe what it's like to be a follower of Jesus and a disciple. And the world needs a Peter disciple. The world needs one to take discipleship truly seriously. The world won't know the gospel because God uses the disciple if the disciple is unwilling to go. Unwilling to be used where they're at. The world will suffer as a result. God knows he can use, God knows he can use every single one of us to advance that gospel, to be used for the kingdom of God. God knows what he can do in us. We just don't see it for ourselves. So sometimes not seeing it just means I'd walk in obedience and trust God and then watch him deliver in massive ways. It gives you joy because you realize you're walking in the call that God's given you to be a servant of people, a lover of people, a lover of God. And so in this particular scripture, there's a few moments that Jesus has encountered with a few people that desire to be a disciple. First and foremost, we start at verse 57. As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. We make statements like this in our lives all the time without fully really understanding what we are committing to. There is a difference between this idea of sudden conviction that comes upon our heart and that which we will actually follow through with in our lives. We're caught up by emotion, a circumstance, a difficulty, and that shapes a moment but doesn't shape a lifetime. I, I think about all the time, and this always comes to my mind when I think about taking in something that has kind of been suddenly thrust upon you and believing in it, and then as time goes on, making decisions that don't line up with that which you just had, had witnessed or been through. We do every 15 minutes all the time at the school, and there's a reason for doing every 15 minutes. If you don't know what it is, but we work with Real, Rialto PD, they come in and work with the school, the administration, and they, they cast the kids to be a part of a movie. And the movie itself portrays some kids making really bad decisions and getting usually in a horrible accident. And it, and it results in some death and some, uh, some injury. And of course, we have a court case. We have, they go to the morgue. They, they take in the whole moment of what it's like to lose life. I think we come out of those moments and I think that there's a sense that students are a shock sometimes. I think there are families that rally around it. I know certain families have played that role here where their, their child was injured or maybe they had loss of life. And you could, you could use that moment and learn something and be caught up in something that you feel like uh, you understand maybe the depth of it and what the safeguards now are for your own life or for your children on how you approach things in the future, whether you know where they're at, what parties they're going to as a teen, making good decisions and not drinking and 
not doing other crazy things, to only know that uh, people get caught up in a moment, and we know every year these tragedies occur around graduation. So though there's even what is it, I can't even remember what it was called, red asphalt movies that we watched as a kid when we took driver's ed, do you remember that? Was to scare you into the idea of being a safe driver. Um, there is fear, but the more you do it, there's comforts that come. And there's assumptions that happen. And before you know it, you went 10 miles down the road and you went, I don't remember a single thing about that last 10 miles. And you all know what I'm talking about. We've lost focus. We're not paying attention. We assume it's all okay. We've lost the ability to be dedicated to the thing that we knew we needed to be dedicated to. Eyes on the road, straight ahead, paying attention to our surroundings. And yet something happens. It scares us. Meaning a cop goes by, and you're like, whoa, was I doing the speed limit? You know exactly, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But something like riles you up, and then you for a moment, you're aware. That wears off in time. If something isn't changed in your heart about what you really believe about speeding, or what kids really believe about drinking, drinking and driving, doing drugs, what parents really believe about parenting and not being... Uh, so, so concerned about like sheltering their child, but rather really knowing where they're at, where they're going, the parties they're attending, the friends that they have. There's some dedication on our part that needs to happen. I always think about that moment because it, it riles up feelings and emotions that you're going, why would anyone want to be a part of this? You know, there are innocent victims as well, of course, and you're thinking, I just, I don't want my child, and I would hope my child says, I don't want to ever make that kind of decision. But then life goes on, and that moment quickly disappears. We know this feeling because I remember exactly where 9-11 was, and you probably do too, when 9-11 took place. I remember where I was when it took place. And we, there was uncertainty. There's all these moments in our life that have a lot of impact at the time, and then it wears off. This is exactly the motivation behind the comment made by the one who says, I will follow you wherever you go. This begins to shape now the conversation that Jesus has with him because Jesus has a reply. Everyone else has a place of comfort, but I do not. If you were to follow me, the plight could be the same as what my life is and will be. If your focus is on the Father's will, this will require a change of potentially everything you know that brings you comfort and confidence. Jesus, again, knows the heart. The one person that made this comment was a scribe. A scribe was a teacher of the law. They recorded, uh, or they, they, they transcribed the scriptures as recorded in Matthew's gospel. Uh, this statement is made by a scribe. Not here in Luke's, but in Matthew's, same situation. They were copiers of the Old Testament scriptures, but really they were devoted to the study of these scriptures to know how to apply them fully. But again, also the law. And the law had gotten bloated and it got out of hand and it was a man-made thing rather than that which God had intended it to be. And so there was this lording over of this law. The following of Christ would, would uh, in, in a sense, be death to oneself, as we talked about it, a bearing of one's cross, and moving forward with what God wills in your life. This would be very hard for the scribe. 
particularly the fact that scribes, elders, and Pharisees were all described as the people that would reject Christ ultimately and cause his death on the cross. And we know that God plays a role in this and had so desired that it be this way, but this was humans resp humankind's response to Jesus. And scribes were lumped in. The way of the scribe, they placed themselves in prominent positions in high esteem. They told others to do things, Matthew 23, particularly. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Jesus knew the heart of this scribe in particular. See, even on their appearance, the way they dress in their tunics, finely robed, it's marked in such a way that they distinguish themselves from others and put them in an upper class. You could see the hypocrisy. Managing a life that puts all your efforts into protecting the law and the protecting that, uh, then projecting that on a people in which you could not ever model it would be wearing. Expectations of everyone else and trying to keep a persona in which people think you do the same would be disastrous for this person. Plus, he knows the heart. So the comment doesn't just come from a disciple and you're, you're running up to Jesus, I'll do this. He knows this particular heart. And this heart would not be willing and would suffer, potentially, but not be willing to enter into that kind of suffering. And I believe Jesus wants genuine disciples. People that are willing to maybe enter into suffering. It's not a guarantee. It doesn't mean you're sent into the, 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 the African jungle and that's where you become a missionary. That's, there is plenty of work to be done. God calls us in all various ways. But you'd have to be willing to set it down and say, whatever your will. The scribe would not. And so that, this is why Jesus replies this particular way. If we're not careful, our heart's intent is never to really follow Jesus as he commands, but rather just to say the words thinking what? That somehow we could uh, talk Jesus in the idea. We cannot talk our way into discipleship. There must be something that transpires in our hearts that shows God that we're willing to do whatever it takes. And for the scribe, it would be absolutely difficult. In fact, for this person, it would be rejected. And so Jesus' reply makes sense. All those comforts and the confidence you have and the way you run your life, you cannot depart from that. You will not be able to separate yourself from those things. That person can't be a true disciple. Then there's another one. Jesus actually invites, starting at verse 59 through 60. And he says, come and follow me. What a grand invitation. Jesus himself inviting you into life with him. Imagine if he was here today and he came and we were all walking outside and walking down the street and he walked up and said, would you come and follow me? And you thought, what an honor this would be. And again, that invitation is to all people, but imagine that in that day, what that was like. For Jesus to approach a person and pick them out and say, come and follow me. The reply is, yes, but let me return home and bury my father. Jesus seems to have a very harsh reply to this per person. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to preach, to go, and to preach the kingdom of God. Again, the Father's will sets the agenda. 
Let's understand the deeper meaning here. I know this. When Lazarus dies, Jesus grieves and he weeps. Okay, so the, the reply seems super harsh. Come and follow me, and then there seems to be an excuse. I will, but let me do this first. Bury my father. And Jesus says, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your business is about to go and preach the kingdom of God. I don't believe that God is against the funeral or he's against the grieving. Because Jesus even goes to the tomb of Lazarus. There's something going on relationally where Jesus is very human and he weeps and he, he grieves over the death of his friend. That's not, that can't be what Jesus is actually saying here because then he would be a hypocrite in this sense. He's not. Let's talk about the spiritually dead. Listen to me very, I always struggled with the scripture a bit because it seems like some of the things here in this scripture would be good things. Understand maybe the deeper meaning that God is revealing to us today. What has been done has been done. What has been done has been done. When a person dies, they enter into spiritual death or life for all eternity. That man could not do anything to change the spiritual status of his father who is deceased or to change his relationship with his father since he is deceased. If it was a healthy relationship before, then it ended as a healthy relationship. If it was an unhealthy relationship, then it has already ended as an unhealthy relationship. There was nothing to be done in this relationship with his father. However, Christ is living and well. And it's called all of us to something in which our lives lived out could invite people into life eternal, into salvation before it's actually too late. There is a harvest ready and the workers are few. And there are people tending to dead things, things that even if tended to would never bear fruit. This man could no longer bear fruit in this relationship have an impact, nor increase the relationship with a dead person. I was thinking about this response of Jesus, and we have this, I made this pond in the back, and we've thrown fish in it multiple times in the backyard. And so we, we can walk up to the pond now, and all the, the fish gather towards us because they know the food's coming, and we give them their food, and that's kind of our daily process. We had a very large bird in our neighborhood, and uh, it stood about this tall, fully white. We went on vacation. I was well aware of this bird because we had made some adjustments along the way of our pond and kind of the situation because this bird found food. And there was, I don't know if you guys have the neighborhood app, but you could see a bunch of people posting in their neighborhood app, beware of the big white bird's back in town and is going to eat all your fish. So there's other people that obviously have a pond or that, that, that sort. So I had gone on vacation and left it in the hands of somebody to just feed the fish. I came back, and the first day I went out to the pond, I went to feed the fish, or I just went out there, I guess, to, to, to look at the fish. I noticed there weren't any fish there. And so I called up my friend who, who 
he didn't really know. I called him up and I said, hey, did you notice something? He goes, every time you, you threw fish, in the, fish food in the fish pond, did you see any fish? He goes, I wondered about that. <laughs> I said, you didn't happen to see a big white bird in the air. He goes, oh, yeah, I did. Where was the white bird? It was on your roof. You know that white bird ate all my fish. He goes, I wondered about that. <laughs> if we're not careful, the practice is, is we just feed the fish to know that there's nothing there. We're tending to dead things. Our lives in so many ways tend to dead things that will never, ever, ever, ever bear fruit. But we will still tend to them. And in this case, Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, let those things that are dead deal with themselves. I'm moving you to a place to speak life. And the world needs that. We're not too careful. We're so caught up in the things that we've, the routines of life, the chaos of life. And we feed things that are, don't even exist anymore, let alone are dead. If it bears no fruit, then it has passed away and it is not something that we should give our attention to. If you are looking for the opportunity to delay following Jesus, you will find any reason in your heart to not do it. And Jesus knows your heart. Then there's another one. And he says that I would follow you, Jesus, but I need to go say goodbye to my family. Well, this is where it gets really tricky. You're thinking, okay, wait a minute, is Jesus against a funeral? That's so horrible. No. But now you go like the family. I need to go say goodbye to your family. Can I put this forward to you right now? I don't believe this. It's ever in the scripture, but my first ministry, the church will always hear this, will be my wife and my kids. You are important. I know it. God's placed us together. But my importance will gravitate first and foremost to my spouse and to my children. So you've heard it. That's just, that's what I believe. And then you come in. And it's great. That's the church. But I believe that's the gift I've been given. So that begins to now shape maybe what Jesus is saying here. Because it sounds horrible. But I really believe this. When it's convenient to do so, then I will forsake all others. But until then. If you love your spouse, your children, your parents, your grandkids, your puppy, any more than you love God, you are ripping them off. I'm going to say it again. If you love any of those relationships any more than you love Jesus, they're getting the bad end of the deal. Our first foremost thing is to be in relationship with God and to love Him because He's loved us. And as a result, all the other relationships that God gives us would actually work themselves out. If I set my gaze upon God Almighty, will He not take care of all other things? Particularly relationships. See, there's a lot of things in our life. And Jesus knows our heart. God doesn't give us allowance to take our time because our attachments to the things of this world have become so cumbersome. They've become real and they've become joyful. The very thing that we might insert here as an excuse 
maybe the thing that actually consumes us, and that could be relationships. And it consumes us more than our relationship with God. God, I want to follow you, but can I please first graduate from high school? Can I get a career or graduate from, you know, maybe enter a career or graduate from college? Lord, I want to follow you, but I, you know what? I, I deserve a spouse first. I want to follow you, God, but I'd like to see us have financial freedom first. God, I would follow you and I would give my time and my talents, but I've got to raise this kid now that you've gifted us with. And the excuses go on and on and on. And our attachments to the things of this world as gifts God has given us become the ultimate priority for us. And we're no different than the people of the world who began to just love the world and forsake God. We will say, but I'm doing this because of how much I love them. Or I want to provide in this way because how much I love them to only know that it's consumed Every part of you. Jobs can be that way as well. Entertainment can be that as well. I keep thinking about even the Christian as a sense of coming to the, to, to the altar to meet the bridegroom, Jesus. That's the analogy that's given in Scripture that we're the bride and he's the bridegroom. And so we've been, we're in this uh, phase of our life where you know this marriage is about ready to take place. And this relationship is coming together with God. And yet, there's a lot of things that happen pre-marriage. I was just thinking from the guy's perspective in the world these days. There's a lot of thoughts that go through the guy before they make that leap. Have I enjoyed life enough as a single person before I, I'm on lockdown? Have I been able to sow my wild oats, experience all the things I want to experience before it's with one person? Have I been able to be independent enough, really rely on myself and become financially successful enough? And if we're not careful, it is about pleasure and getting the most out of, what is the last thing that we do as couples, some of it's done very well, some of it's done very poorly, before we get married. We have what's called the bachelor party. And I don't even need to describe what happens at a bachelor party. But if we're not careful, that's exactly what we're doing with a relationship with God. I got to enjoy all these things until I, until then I won't, I can't follow you. And I'll try to cram it all in as fast as I can. And we realize that those things are destructive. And what's funny is if we would just surrender and enter into that relationship with God, everything that we have or we, we think that we wanted there in, in those instances would be trumped by his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so what we're seeking, God has on the other side of this relationship that is far grander than anything we can think about. And marriage is the same way. That's a blessing and that's a gift. But if we're not careful, we want this independence and we want this self-sufficiency. We've talked about these things before. And we are chasing those things. And they become the excuse of why we can't enter into relationship with God in this way. And that is to be his disciple and to follow him. Jesus then replies, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. 
This, again, seems like a harsh reply. Luke 14, Jesus says, counting the cost. Do you not know the cost and the sacrifice that is necessary so that when you commit, you would actually have follow-through? And he uses the idea of who, who just begins to build without understanding the costs and the expenses. And that's what, what it would take to complete the task. So would you not understand all the fullness of the picture of all the materials and all the time that it would take to be able to complete that building? And you come back to go, I now understand what Jesus is saying. There's a task. It must be completed. And he needs the follow through of all disciples to do it until the end. Did you not count the cost and the sacrifice before you said, I will? And if you didn't, he's bringing you back to that place. Here it is. This is the cost and the sacrifice. It may be everything. You're looking back when you plow the following, can, the following can occur. And these distractions will be what prohibit you from being a disciple. We have memories and minds, and we can't forget. We know the past. We know the good, and we know the bad. And you'll be, you'll be reminded constantly of that life that is good and that is bad back there. And everything that up until this point you feel like has been provided for, but potentially even all of its disasters and the things that went wrong because the decisions we made or maybe just things that were thrust upon us in life that were difficult, even the bondage at which we lived in. Israel constantly looked back. God brought them forward into this land, the desert. And in this bringing them forward, it was going to be a reliance on God himself to provide. And what was their complaint? Can we just go back to Egypt or at least we had meals. But what else did they have? Bondage. Do you not remember the crying out daily to God to save them? See, these see the fruits that existed, though they didn't even outweigh the bondage that existed in their lives. And they end up in a land where there's nothing but desert. No water to be seen. God makes water come out of a rock. That, that's who our God is. But we can't see it doesn't mean that God can't see it. One of the ugliest things is an unmaintained field. But then something happens and somebody gets their tractor out there and they begin to plow. And you see those lines. And then you're wondering, I wonder what they're doing over there. He doesn't see anything different but lines of dirt. And they're called furrows. But then there's that season where it's opened up the ground and rain has fallen, and something of vegetation begins to grow. And before you know it, you have a massive crop and harvest that not only blesses you, but blesses other people the way of the farmer. God can see the harvest that's coming. We have trouble. All we see is that ugly field. And you want me to do what, God? I can't see it. So a lot of us can't dream up what God already sees. We can't put in our mind's eye the fact that there would be growth or something grand. So we always look back. Or we try to find it somewhere else. But we generally look back. The key here, the fundamental key here is if someone's going to plow, they need that original first straight line. When you look back and your attention is given to other things, you spoil what God's trying to do. How do you know 
if you're going straight without looking behind you? Might be the question that you ask. It's easy. At least in that time, between the ears of the animal, you have a fixed point, and you gaze, and you stay on that fixed point and plow straight ahead. One of the funniest things that I, I, I say the funniest things, it was a, I guess I noticed it and went, I wonder if I was like that too as a teen when I taught my son to drive. And it was how often, you know, we talk about keeping our eyes forward and it's no longer, I think, 10 and 2 anymore. I think they've got it somewhere here because of airbags, but whatever that posture is, looking forward. But what do you do with your rearview mirrors? You glance at it. It's a look. But I, I remember, and I think I remember my brother now at this point in time, there would be this blinker already moving over, but then staring backwards, right? And how dangerous is it to drive forward by looking backwards? Very dangerous. It's to watch my son sort of struggle with that and realize, oh, you know what? We want to fix our gaze on what's behind us to only know there's nothing there. I've taken my glance. I can see there's nothing there and moving forward and moving on. There may be a sense of learning. But Jesus is saying, fix your eyes. Make your gaze straight ahead of you so that that line will be straight and all other lines to follow will be straight. And when you plow that field, it will have the greatest potential for a harvest. We, we don't want room for weeds to grow, do we? We want the ultimate harvest. A straight plow will make use of the land to get it plowed and not leave any space for anything else other than what God desires for our life. God is not interested in some growth. God is interested in maximum growth. And that involves you and it involves me. Reaping the harvest requires us to first plow. Some people were like, yeah, I want to get in on it when we've got to pull all the plants and, you know, uh, uh, harvest the, the fruit or whatever it is. that I'll be a part of that. It's the people of God that have been called to look at a lot of land and go, boy, that's ugly. And God's like, need plow it. And for us to get out there and be able to see what God sees and take the time and invest and get the straight plow line and continue to plow back and forth, setting the seed out, getting maximum growth out of that field, and then watching God do what he does. We still want to just reap the benefits really quick, right? I want to see my shot before I actually hit it. I need to fix my gaze on the thing that I need to fix my gaze on that I don't have to worry about it, but the results will be grand. As a church, we're called to fix our gaze. We're called to set to the plow and never look back. This is what Jesus has called the disciples and he calls us. I was reminded myself of a song. I was sitting in my office. Uh, it was in, uh, it's like 1992. The author's kind of unknown, the lyrics. Uh, but the, the words were, I have decided to follow Jesus. Remember that? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Verse 2. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. I want us to be a church that plows ahead. And when one can't see it, 
another reminds of the great harvest that awaits us if we continue to plow, if we continue to move forward. And those that can see it, celebrate the vision that God's given you. I'll do the same. And those that are struggling, remind them that it takes hard work and discipline. Don't look backwards. There's so much bondage backwards. There's so much ahead, not even just for us, but for the sake of the whole world. See, the Israelites going back meant the whole world didn't hear the good news. That they wouldn't see a God who came to the rescue and was magnificent, the God of this world. The God who's overcome the God of this world, Satan. They would see a God who's flaked out and been unfaithful had he let them just run back to Egypt. Instead, he brought them out to a place where they couldn't see anything and they began to flourish and they took over land that bore some of the greatest fruit. And yet, the people always fought God in this. The world's looking at us to see what kind of God we serve. And if we're not willing to plow a field and take the time and the energy to do the things that are required of us as Christians, the world, like, they're weak. Their God must be weak. We're not that way, are we? We're strong. I prayed that earlier. We are powerful because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The God of this world is going to win. And I, I want to clarify that. My son says this to a teacher a while ago. Who's the God of this world? And he's like, Satan. That's what the scripture says. He's got a, 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 a stronghold on everyone that doesn't believe in God. It's very, very dark. But God Almighty wins in the end. We already know this. He's the victor. But if we're not careful, we're feeding into the very thing that is happening in our world. And it's just death and destruction. How? By standing still. The kingdom of God needs you. The kingdom of God needs me. This is where we're going to make this grand leap as a church. And for some of you, it's not a leap at all. You've been doing it your whole life. But we're calling the people of the bridge to step out and start to plow. Plow. 